0: The Athletic. The only way to score is, of course, to play uh, with a handbreak. off
1: Hello, I'm Ian Stone. This is Handbreak off the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. We're recording this on a Sunday afternoon. Yes, no days of rest for your podcast team. We'll talk about the City defeat, uh, transfer, and new contract chat. And James has written a great piece on Eddie and Katie, and we'll chat about that. Uh, James McNicholas and Amy Lawrence are here. Hello. Hello.
2: Hello, Ian.
1: Hello, hello. Although it feels much later, uh, it is halfway through the season. It feels like it's been going for years <laughs> this season. But anyway, here we are. Uh, essentially, half-time in the Premier League. Uh, so we thought we'd ask our guest, what is your half-time routine? Amy, I am going to come to you first. What do you do at half time? I mean, I am actually, by the way, I am sort of asking both of you because you write uh, about football for a living, often about the game. If it's like three 0 do you start writing your report thinking oh, I'll be all right? I mean, Amy, what do you do? You do any work at half time? Oh uh,
0: well, I have to say that all of that has kind of changed a lot since the Athletic because the deadlines are a bit more generous than things that are slightly more live, so for uh, most of my working life on a newspaper you'd have to do a runner and a runner actually meant that you had to file ha- it's like running copy uh, half the copy gets sent at half time uh, another little chunk goes at 75 minutes and really? at 90 minutes or whatever or stoppage time whatever you get to write what's called the top and tail and somehow it all is supposed to link together like magic and read Seamlessly
1: how can you concentrate I mean I can't concentrate on anything when I'm watching football
0: <laughs> yeah I do remember famously a half time of England played Italy I think it was a nil nil where they qualified for the World Cup when Glenn Hoddle was manager
1: I was there and in I, Italy I was oh, there there
0: you go and there was a um I had a technology issue which in those days was even more dramatic than nowadays and uh, you
1: couldn't find a fast pigeon. <laughs>
0: No, sadly, no. Not even a smoke signal. So uh, I spent I spent all of half time, uh, basically, uh, you know, hating my early days laptop that wasn't doing what it was supposed to do to send the stuff to the office, and then spent the, most of the, the second half dictating all my half time copy down the phone while the second half was going on, while also trying to write or remember what the hell was going on in the second half for my next bit. And it was Old just by school. the end of that game, I felt like. I, d- I died some kind of footballing death. But, yeah, you know, I mean, it's not the standard halftime routine, I grant you. What do you do at
1: halftime, then?
0: Well, a, a, a regular Emirates game yeah. in the season ticket. Well, you know, it's funny because thinking about it, for years and years, halftime meant reading the programme, didn't it? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I think that there are, I, I notice still there are some people who religiously sit down on their seat at halftime, get their programme out and have a little read. And I like the way people around you all have different routines. You know, someone always brings the same chocolates or, um, or whatever uh, sustenance they, they choose. I've got a couple of people near us who always go down for a, a swift beer at half time, but generally never appear until about 25 minutes into the second half. I don't know what goes on in that
1: time. Well, it's just it's huge cues, it's just huge cues, is what well, it is. It what, is
0: you've missed 25 minutes of the game. Well, I they just have a bit of a chat, watch it on the telly in the concourse, <laughs> which strikes me as slightly odd.
1: No, I agree. To
0: their own. I agree. Um, I no, just, I it's just a nice time for chatting with the people around you and usually worrying about about what might happen in the
1: second half. Well, oh, quiet, quiet. What about you, James? What do you do at half time? What's your routine?
2: No, nothing special. Nothing that different really. Where I sit in my season ticket, if you want to get a drink at half time, you probably pretty much have to leave your seat five minutes early, I would say. And I don't yeah. do that. So I don't I don't have a drink or anything. I might see a few Friends or whatever. But one thing I have noticed about half-time is, you know, at some unspecified point in the half-time period, they show the highlights from the first half. I don't know how, but I miss that every week. I try. I always say, I'd love to see that goal again or see that chance. Or he looked offside. <laughs> And whatever I do in half-time, I always miss that. It's just yeah. a consistent thing. What about you, Ian? Do you have any special rituals? Uh,
1: no, but you know what? We sit with a load of mates, so you catch up what, you, what you've been up to. Maybe talk about the game, but not that much, to be honest. And I, uh, and I try and avoid the lose because the queues are immense. And if we ever get to gender-neutral toilets, people will not get back for the entire second half, is all I'm saying. <laughs> so uh, I just catch up with mates, uh, essentially. And uh, I used to read the programme. I haven't done that in a while, uh, to be honest Uh, with you.
0: Has anyone ever fancied uh, taking a penalty against Gunosaurus, which they do at halftime? Sorry, is
1: that an option? I thought there were children who did that.
0: Well, I'm just putting it out there just in case it was some fantasy or something.
1: Uh, No, no, I never have. I I just feel like I'd have the wrong shoes on or something. I can't, if it's a wet pitch and I've got my suede shoes on, that'd be a disaster. Uh, Anyway, well, it would, wouldn't it? You've got to spray them, but even still.
2: Very proud of the boys. They fully deserve the chance to play. Um, we kept telling them that everybody's important and then if that's the case, they have to play and they show me, they give me another reason today to keep trusting them and um, and contributing with the team.
1: Manchester City won, Arsenal nil in the FA Cup. Basically a full-strength City side, aside from their keeper, against an Arsenal team with six changes. Uh, the emotions at full-time. James sort of, oh well, there you go. Never mind, really, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean, I guess so. Yeah, it seems like quite a sort of cheery, relaxed start to a podcast coming off the back of an Arsenal defeat. And I guess maybe that tells you a little bit about people's priorities. It's never nice to lose any game, never nice to go out of any competition. But I just think people's minds and maybe hearts are elsewhere. There's so much focus on the Premier League season. And actually... Curiously enough, I think Arsenal can come out of this defeat. You know, if you if you're thinking about the Premier League season, quite heartened because you know they went there with a a heavily changed team, six changes from Mikel Arteta, and I think they'll come away feeling that they haven't really got much to fear uh, in Manchester City. I know they didn't play with the intensity that we would expect maybe of them and that we might get from them in a league game, but I thought in the first half, in particular, Arsenal really were very, very much in the game and but for a you know, a couple of good saves or a couple of shots that went, you know, a bit too close to the keeper, it could have been a different result, really.
1: Yeah. Uh, I mean, Amy, when you take um when you're one 0 down, you take Bukayo Sakharov, that tells you about priorities, doesn't it?
0: Yes, but at the same token, if you looked at the body language of the players in that last ten minutes or so, they really weren't taking defeat that gently. Well, that's they great. Were, that's great. Yeah, absolutely. But they were really pushing to try and get something out of the game, even if um, a replay probably wouldn't have been much loved by anyone concerned with the schedule. But I just think I had a really positive feeling out of this game. Again, I, I feel almost like I need to admonish myself for being accepting of going out the cup because my younger self would never have done that. And I suppose it's just a question of contextualising everything and realising what an opportunity Arsenal have this season. You know, in a funny kind of way, if you look at Man City, it just might be at some point that further down the line that they are more phlegmatic about the league situation if they think they might win the Champions League <laughs> for a similar sort of... But do, do you see what I'm saying? Oh, well, please well, let obviously, that happen. Maybe it's just wishful thinking, but... <laughs> But I, I do think there's a sense that look the FA Cup is always special to Arsenal because it, it's, it's a competition where we are the record winners yeah. um, of all time. And it's been really important at different points of the club's history. You know, like seriously important. But this season has this kind of, this slight feeling of, you know, there's a pot of gold and I think we can reach it which normally you don't think that you can grasp it at all. Yeah. And for that reason, I think we have to keep our perspectives sort of more flexible, really, than you might okay. normally. Okay. But I, I also like the fact that I just thought after the first 20 minutes or so, or so, in keeping with this season, Arsenal went into a match away from home against you know a good team in a difficult environment and showed their sort of new personality. Yeah. And I really like that. And if you, was it only a year ago, Nottingham Forest in the Cup? Yes, was it that was. that last year? It was. was and like, when <laughs> I think it's been quite a while that going into these sort of certain Cup games where the manager picks a sort of mixed-ish team and you have a few people coming in that are a bit rusty or haven't played that much and a few maybe uh, a fringe players that perhaps wouldn't have been involved it's so hard to get the balance right when you have, when you're mixing it up like that. And the thing I found most encouraging was that the quality of Arsenal's game, despite all those changes was, you know, almost seamless for a period in that first half. And that to me demonstrated that in the evolution of what's going on, it's not just the strength of the first 11, but it's a bit broader than that. It's the strength of maybe the first 15, 16. Now, not everybody, um, you know, was, uh, had a stunning performance, but there were so many more players coming in who, you know, were so so comfortable that you think, oh, they're a bit unlucky not to be playing a bit more, example, Tomiyasu.
1: Yeah. Yeah, uh, and I'm sure we'll see more of him. I also should say at this point that it's very likely we'll do a similar podcast later on in the season when we go out to the Europa League, having played uh, a reserve team because we've got a massive game at the weekend. Of the people that came in, James... Lot of chat about Sambi because Thomas Partey went off at half time injured, uh, not too badly as it turns out. Probably be fit for Everton at the weekend. I mean, Sambi is a decent player, but when you're replacing someone like Thomas Partey, it just shows how important uh, Thomas is to the uh, to what we do.
2: Yeah, and I think probably shows why Arsenal are trying to make sure they've got a contingency via the transfer market for if they they do lose Partey. Um, Yeah,
1: which we'll talk about in a
2: second. I I do feel for Sabi a little in that I think a lot of players uh, would struggle in comparison with Partey. I think that he's a really unique uh, player in terms of his ability on the defensive side of the game, but also on the ball. And I think, you know, Sabi's stronger on the ball than off it. And we see that those weaknesses exposed in in a big game like this. But, yeah, I, I just feel like it hasn't really clicked for him at Arsenal. And if I'm honest, I don't f- feel like it's going to. Never say never in football, but... It, no,
1: it, Eddie Nketiah, who you wrote a piece about, would a lot of people would have said the same thing about him as well, right?
2: Absolutely. So, uh, you know, as I say, never say never, but... If I had to call it right now, I, I'm not sure I see him at Arsenal in the long term. And and to be honest, I think if Arsenal had a bit more depth, maybe even one more midfielder, I wonder if he might have been allowed to leave this month. Uh, he's expressed, you know, at the end of last season, an unhappiness at not playing much. And the way in which he left the field at the end of the game, you know, he, he'd had made a couple of mistakes in match. Martin Odegaard had shown some frustration with him, and he was straight off down the tunnel. And I just sort of thought, he looks like a player who maybe needs a, a change of environment if he's going to kick on and fulfil the potential that he showed when he was at Anderlecht. Um, the the reality is, however, that Arsenal, in terms of coverage and depth, uh, right now they do need him in the squad. So uh, I don't see that changing imminently. But yeah, my my hopes for Le Conga sort of going on and being a big part of the Arteta project moving forward are pr- pretty slim at this point in time.
0: Can I throw a name at you when you talk about players going forward in the Arteta project, um, Fabio Vieira? I mean, there has been,
1: can I just say before you come in, James, there has been, I've seen a fair bit of talk saying that he hasn't quite justified his fee yet. He's only half a season in though, isn't he, Amy? I mean, mm. I mean, are you expressing doubts or are you just basically putting the name out there for us to discuss
0: it? A bit, uh, possibly a little bit of both. Uh, I mean, I think that, I have empathy with almost any player requiring time to settle in when they go to a, a new country, a new club, a new culture, a new everything. And he was a bit unlucky when he first arrived; that he came injured, and his pre-season was interrupted, and so on. But I feel like there's been these little glimmers from him that have been very exciting, but that otherwise it feels like somehow he's just not quite on the same wavelength as the rest of the guys. And that might be asking a lot, given how Arsenal are playing this season. But when we're talking about understudies and and the squad depth and what's necessary to maintain these standards for the second half of the season, you you do look at Martin Odegaard and then you think, okay, what if something happens to him? Hmm. As opposed to what if something happens to Thomas Partey? As opposed to what if something happened to Gabriel Jesus and did? You know, any, anytime something like that happens, it's an opportunity for somebody else. Now, is Vieira ready enough, adapted enough, strong enough, expressive enough, smart enough, all those things you need on the pitch, confident enough to, to, to come in and... Dominate games. Well, in a way, god wasn't quite there when he first arrived well, on either. That, so, but point. I'm just curious. I'm just uh, to know what other people think because obviously it was a um, he's had a few opportunities lately, but without really um, being able to influence games. And I think that's something that he probably needs to do to convince people that he is well worthy of being you know, very much involved in this this squad and their ambitions.
1: James, I mean, Amy makes a point there, you know, Martin Odegaard took some time. I mean, really, I I know a lot of people who were saying, oh, we should play Mill Smith-Rowe in that position um, last season. Now he's come in and now he looks just one one of the best players in the world in that position. It's hard to replace him. It's hard for a guy to step in half a season into his Arsenal career.
2: I don't often say this. I'm usually much more careful, but I think those people are idiots. I think it was obvious from day one that Martin Odegaard was a sensational footballer and he had ups and downs and he struggled physically at times. But I think his talent was abundantly clear. But um, well, that's my personal opinion.
1: I'll pass that on to the people yeah, who Yeah, do, do, it. do. Okay. Well, hopefully
2: yeah. they're listening. Um, but <laughs> I think that... Uh, The Vieira case is interesting. I mean, you know, Amy referenced him sort of in this, you know, as a comparison with Sambi. And I would say we're 12 months down the line with Sambi. And, you know, I think the trajectory hasn't always been the the direction that you'd want. What I would say for Vieira, and, and to be fair, this is true of all the squad players. What's tricky is we see them come into a team most of the time when there are kind of four, five, six changes made. And I honestly think the truest test of these players is if we just took Martin Odegaard out and put Vieira in, what would we see of them? And we did do that at Brentford when Odegaard wasn't available at short notice and Vieira scored a great goal and generally played really well. I I do feel like, you know, and you mentioned Eddie, and Eddie, the key for him was not to get Carabao games and Europa games, but to get a run in the first 11 with... With Thomas Partey, with Granit Xhaka, with Gabriel Martinelli, with Bukayo Saka, I think only then will we really discover what we've got in Vieira. But uh, he does have challenges if he's going to make it, you know, at Arsenal and in English football. And you know, it's very simplistic to sort of look at the the physical aspect. I think, but in his case, you sort of can't get away from it. You know, he's I just slight, think isn't he? he's very slight. He's very small. To, to, to be that to have that kind of physicality and thrive in the Premier League demands an exceptional level of performance and that is the challenge that he is facing right now
1: yeah, yeah. Um, Daniel Taylor wrote um, a piece about the game on Friday night uh, on the athletic website talked about uh, Leandro Trossard and quoted uh, Aaron Ramsdale saying uh, Trossard is coming in to take someone's place. It might look like he's coming in to be part of the squad, but deep down, like I was with Bernd Leno, he's coming to take one of the front three players' places. I mean, is that a factor, Amy, of him being a, a proven Premier League player and he's not moving just to be part of the squad? He genuinely wants to take... Uh, I guess it's Gabby Martinelli's place. He's going to be incredibly hard to, uh, hard to shift, but this is what you want of a top-level team. You want people to be competing for places properly.
0: Absolutely. And I I think it's um I'd be slightly disappointed if he if he didn't think a bit like that. It doesn't mean he's gonna get it. <laughs> but the way that the modern game is, everybody gets plenty of game time in any event. But I, I, I think that to be a professional footballer, to overcome all the hurdles that you know are placed in front of you usually since childhood to make all the sacrifices and deal with all the external pressures that come with that route from being, you know, a talented kid who just loves playing football to actually being professional at an elite football club demands a certain type of psychology uh, and ambition. And I don't suppose there's many uh, players who don't feel similar, if not identical to that, you know, Ramsdale. Ramsdale does come across as a really confident guy, and he would articulate that and totally believe it. Others might not be quite as self-assured as he is, but I think somewhere in your mind, when you're coming into a new club, you've got to be thinking, "I want to play. I'm not just here to kind of make up the numbers and see what happens."
2: In my experience, most players think they should be playing. Like mm. it's a generalisation, and you you know there are exceptions, but as you say, Amy, to 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 reach that point you've been the best probably at like every level you played since you were six or something. And the level of confidence that imbues you with and belief is significant. So of course he'll feel he should play. And to be fair to him, he's making a pretty compelling case on the limited evidence we've seen so far.
1: Quite, quite involved in the goal the winning goal against Man United and, uh, and almost scored against city. Um, in terms of moving forward for the game on February the 15th and the other one in April, I mean, it's sort of psychologically a draw, is it, really, that City won, but we played our half our second team and uh, and we, we sort of feel like, yeah, we matched them because we have to remember when our second team went to Tottenham last year, they got absolutely hammered. And so Sorry, Amy, you want to say something?
0: No, I was just going to answer your question, but w- w- without um, wanting to be 100 years old, in 1989, sorry, I know I'm mentioning it again, but there was such a significant League Cup game away at Anfield, at Liverpool, earlier on in the season. And actually, it was a draw. It was a brilliant one-on-draw. Dave Roeckel scored an absolute screamer. And that game, the players have subsequently looked back on it and said that, you know, something changed in that game because they went up there and they went toe-to-toe, eyeball-to-eyeball, in every way, they were they were on a level with Liverpool that night at Anfield. And that hadn't happened in the experience of most of those players on the pitch for both teams. And the psychological impact of that was that Arsenal suddenly went, right, we're as good as them. And Liverpool also went, oh, these are good, aren't they? Yeah. And I think, think you know, irrespective of the result, just in terms of the performance and the closeness of it all generally and the fact that it wasn't an easy canter for Man City by any stretch, I think they now realise, they've seen it firsthand right in front of their noses that Arsenal mean business. And I think for Arsenal, they would have sat on the, whatever uh, mode of transport they had coming home (laughs) and whatever hurt they had, there would also be a like, Nothing to be afraid of here. And that's huge. Whatever happens, just having those feelings, it's really, you're, you're planting the seed. You're planting the seed in your brain. And that's that what
1: I, that's what I saw on Twitter. Different. That's what I saw on Twitter as well, uh, James. Uh, the vast majority of the van, fan base were like, we've got nothing to fear here.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. And actually... Well,
0: there are a few things to fear. There are a few things to fear, yeah. There's to, loads fear, to yeah.
1: fear, but they can fear as
0: well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah, I think there's, I think... There are things to respect, but not necessarily fear. Maybe that's the distinction. And City, you know, they always provide a threat. And Haaland, you know, you could just never say... I thought Saliba and Gabriel, when they were on the pitch, did a really terrific job with him. But, you know, it only takes a moment for him to, to make the difference. I think there are a few things we can take away from the game. And one is that, you know, it could be decided by the finest, finest of margins. Like games between two sides who are as well coached as this, it's moments that decide them. And it's going to be incredibly closely fought when we face them in the league. But I am excited about it. I mean, how can you not be? After the Manchester United game, the atmosphere that was generated there, the performance Arsenal produced, the manner in which they won it... The stakes around the City game. I honestly feel like if we can take our first eleven or close to our first eleven into that game, we stand a really good chance of landing a big, big blow to to City's title hopes in that match.
1: I'm I'm excited just hearing you talk about it. To be honest with you, I mean, I, I mean, I have read various people saying this could be a game for the ages. I think that from the neutral point of view, two teams this good going at each other. Uh, I yeah, I can't wait, but. Uh, Everton first Uh, let's not get ahead of ourselves a couple of transfer possibilities James I'll ask you about this Moises Caicedo he's making eyes at us isn't he let's be fair Uh, he made a whole big statement about I'm the youngest of 10 siblings from a poor upbringing in Santo Domingo Domingo in Ecuador my dream has always been to to be the most decorated player in the history of Ecuador this whole statement uh, he wants to leave Brighton it is Ridiculous amounts of money, it is. Uh, 60 million apparently is a derisory figure. <laughs> Love reading that stuff. Must feel great for everyone to read that. But obviously football finances are ridiculous. What What's your feeling, James? It's going to be a difficult one to get over the line, isn't it?
2: It is, yeah. Brighton uh, have taken a very strong position on it. I mean, Tony Bloom, obviously, who owns Brighton, is a professional poker player. So I guess Arsenal will be hoping it's a bluff. We shall see. I honestly can't call this. Like, I I don't know how this will end because the player has made it very clear what he wants to the extent that, to be honest, I think it... uh, Sorry, go on, Ian, yeah?
1: No, no, no. All I was going to say was that um, uh, Roberto De Zerbi, after the Liverpool game, said, I would like Moises to finish the season with us, but we are ready to go forward without him. And they beat Liverpool 2-1 without him in the team today.
2: Yes, but it won't be De Zerbi's decision ultimately, you know, he is the coach and it will come down to the ownership, what happens here. And he's got to play a bit of a game politically deserved, but you know, he's got to keep the player on side because he might have a bloke report for training on Wednesday. Uh, and he's got to somehow motivate him to play for him for the remainder of the season. Yeah. I uh, listen, Who I'm much? not a Brighton fan. I don't watch Brighton every week, but this seems to me like an opportune moment to sell a player for quite an extraordinary amount of money.
1: They got um, him for five. They got him for five million and they'd sell him for upwards of 60.
2: Yeah. Decent uh,
1: bit of business.
2: And I think it would be, it would have probably, you know, you'd have to be getting to 70, 80 before Brighton would even look at it, I think, given how, how strong their position seems to be right now. Yeah, I do wonder if, if, if they can get someone else in before the deadline, the smart thing for them might be to sell because Arsenal are in a bit of a bind where they need a player. The stakes are so high for Arsenal, they're probably more inclined to overpay than they would be at other points. So, yeah, we'll see. I I, I really don't know. Do you have a, a, a gut feeling, Amy?
0: Well, my only gut feeling is like, it'd be quite good to... to- I identify some players that weren't at Brighton occasionally. <laughs> I mean, I, I absolutely understand why a lot of their players were extremely appealing, and you watch pretty much any of their games, and there's three or four players. I mean, look at Mitoma; he's just oh. delightful. Ah, oh, lovely footballer. And 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 McAllister was so good in the World Cup, and you think, Jay, really, you know, whatever it is that they're drinking uh, to pump themselves up for their stuff on the. Uh, On the uh, on uh, you know recruitment, they you know if you could if you could buy a crate of that, they're really on the good stuff. I mean, (laughs) yes, but it just feels like it. It slightly reminds me when Liverpool just used to go and shop at Southampton, didn't they, for a while? Didn't work out
1: badly for them, did it? it Van Dyke, Mane. I mean,
0: but I think Brighton are are far trickier club to extract players from than Southampton ever wow. were because you know they're really super smart in terms of their business uh, management so yeah it's a tough one and also like you said Ian it's just the um, it's so hard to get your head around the finances I feel like I can't really judge the transfer worth I don't know how anyone actually comes up with a transfer fee anymore when you sit down to make a bid on what basis Never. do you come up with a sum because everything seems insaner than ever
2: the Premier League price is so inflated, you know. No, no one on the people clubs in Spain, France, Italy—they're not paying this kind of money for players. It's happening in England specifically. Yeah.
0: But also, do you think it's not a—it's not a coincidence that a lot of recent signings Arsenal have made? And remember, Arsene Wenger very, very seldom bought a Premier League player. But I wonder whether it's a deliberate thing at this particular point in Arsenal's development that they're actually targeting. You know, Premier League ready, Premier League experience, because obviously, you know, when you look at Gabriel Jesus, Zinchenko, Drossard, uh, just recently. You know, these are guys who have literally walked in from the first minute yes. and made an impact on and off the pitch. Yeah, and and I and and that's probably why you know there there may well be some some plan B, C, D, whatever in other leagues, but for right now, somebody that you might need to throw in the team imminently. In a very important position, I, I think they want to know what they're dealing with.
2: I think that's right. And I think, you know, even go past those signings, White, Ramsdale, Premier League signings. Yeah. We've even had ones that haven't worked out as well, William, Cedric. So it's been a clear element in Arteta's recruitment, people who can who are experienced in the Premier League. The Southampton comparison is really interesting because the phrase you sometimes hear around players that are Arsenal are linked with or, you know, someone's just, oh, what about this player for Arsenal? What about this player? And I sometimes hear the phrase, oh, he doesn't suit the game model. You know, he doesn't suit the, the Arteta model of, of how to play football. And clearly, you know, they've arrived at the conclusion that Brighton players do because White, yeah. Trossard, Caicedo would be a third, We'd all love <laughs> Mitoma in the summer. Whatever happens, we need to keep relations with Brighton healthy enough that we could one day go back for Matoma. The goal he scored today against Liverpool yeah, was absolutely beautiful. sensational.
1: One more thing about all this. Um, there was a lot of talk a few weeks ago about Declan Rice uh, coming in the summer. I'd love to see him uh, play for us, but uh, how that works with Moises Caicedo already in the team, assuming that we get him in the next few days... Who knows? Um, we'll Stop see. making
0: billions of assumptions, Ian. Well, quiet. No, <laughs> Slow listen, down. Just, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right.
1: You're absolutely right.
0: Let's see How about happens. a conversation like this in a week's time or something? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, Wednesday. <laughs>
1: when uh, when we chat on Wednesday, uh, after the transfer window has uh, slammed shut, uh, to use the uh, phrase they always say. Well, don't they just close it quietly. But anyway, they slam it shut. Uh, then we'll know. Uh, and then we'll have another chat. Uh, this is Handbrake Off the Arsenal
2: We better bit uh, with the handbrake at time.
1: This is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Ian Stone, Amy Lawrence and James McNicholas here. A um, couple of things happened this week. Uh, one fantastic thing, um, according to David Ornstein, reported that uh, Gabby Martinelli has signed a new four-and-a-half-year contract with Arsenal. James... Uh, I mean, he always talked about how he loves Arsenal. He wants to stay here his entire career. It's not really a surprise, but it's still a boost for everyone, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I actually think this news has been a little bit lost. It came out shortly before the game. And then there was all the Caicedo, you know, trouble and him putting the statement out. But this is a massive thing that this is all agreed in principle. You know, there are three big contracts that every Arsenal fan has been talking about. Martinelli, Saka and Saliba. And to have one of those ticked off is a really big step in the right direction. I think this was always going to be the most straightforward of those three yes. for the club yes. to do. Um, so maybe it's no great surprise. It's the one that's got done first. And until the other two are done, there'll be, you know, some anxiety out there. But it wouldn't that be a nice sort of... Uh, Philip, once the window is shut, if in the second half of the season, at kind of the right points, we can, if Arsenal get in a position where they can announce that news and sort of the goodwill that that will generate, they could be potentially, if they're smart, quite strategic about that and use that to kind of help, you know, give them that extra injection of momentum towards the finishing line. I'd like to think so because, yeah, fantastic about Martinelli. Now let's see those others done ASAP, please.
1: Quite. And, Amy, they are generational talents, aren't they, these players? I mean, they certainly could be. And I think in the case of Bukayo Saka, already, he already is at that level. I mean I, I mean, I know we've talked about this before. I personally, I look at it, obviously, as a fan and think, why would you want to leave Arsenal? I know there are agents involved. I know that there are all sorts of other options. But right now, we are one of the... Most attractive clubs. If we, you know, players are expressing an interest in in coming to us and talking about us in very glowing terms, you know, we're a London club. We're in the Premier League. We know the wages are high. I mean, the grass is always greener, isn't it? But it, it it's got to be strange it, it, It's got to be a an odd thing you'd have thought for Saliba or Saka to think anywhere else would be more fun than they're having at the moment.
0: I mean, if it was just about fun, I think it would be a bit easier. But you know, yeah. Uh, I don't think it's just about fun. You know, <laughs> You're absolutely right. It, it's not. I, thi- it's I not. think if it was just about fun, then probably Mudrick would be uh, an Arsenal player as well. Um, but, you know, the, the, there's just so many people involved with such high level finance, so much to be gained and moved around in terms of money that it is, uh, it's difficult to resist. I mean, you, you only have to look at Ashley Cole and, you know, he 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 was actually. It was the season after the Invincibles. How much fun was that? That he went and met with uh Mourinho and Peter Kenyon and the Chelsea contingent in a London hotel somewhere, you know, uh, and was tapped up. You know, that was that was months after being an Invincible and planting that plastic trophy at, at White Hart Lane in the centre circle. So. It's very hard. You can't put yourself in the minds of any of these people. And I think, again, I'm always reminded of something Tony Adams used to say a lot. And you look at Tony Adams, obviously, you know, Mr. Arsenal, and think there's no way that he would get it. He would think like a fan, etc., etc. And he always used to say, and it surprised me sometimes when you got a bit excited about things or a bit low about things, and you'd go, it's a job. It's our job. And I think as fans, we forget that all the time you know for these all these footballers yes they love it no matter how engaged and attached and emotional they get about all sorts of things it's their job and if someone comes along and turns your head in your job nearly everybody will at least give it some thought whether you do it or not you know not many people turn around and go no nah, I'm not I don't want to listen to you I'm I'm just happy where I am yeah. everybody listens and then it's a question of how much you know, what you think or how you react to that.
2: We all work for The Athletic at the end of the day. <laughs> that,
0: that, was, that was the bit you, That was... Not quite getting out, thanks, James.
1: No, no, oh God! No, um, no, you're absolutely right, uh, Amy. I see. <laughs> listen, if Steven Gerrard can get his head turned to leave Liverpool and possibly go to Chelsea, which he didn't do in the end, but that tells you that, that there's very few players who stick around at one club for their entire career. But let's get them to sign their contracts as soon as possible. Uh, is, I'm talking about Bukayo Saka and uh, William Saliba. Uh, one person who did sign for us at the end of last season, uh, signed for us, signed a new contract for us. Uh, for us was Eddie and Ketia. James, you've written a great piece, I must say, about Eddie and his transformation from squad player to first 11. I mean, you broke it down to physicality, mentality, tactics, strategy and the future. I mean, is there anything in particular, do you think that Gabriel Jesus coming along essentially showed him the way almost? I mean, he's obviously been quite a a strong minded character, but he has definitely taken a step up since Gabby Jesus came to the club.
2: It's a really good point, actually, because as soon as uh, Jesus came into the club, it was clear that he and Eddie had a rapport. And I remember even back in pre-season, Jesus talking about Nketiah and his qualities. And it was very clear there was kind of a mutual admiration between the two players. And Eddie did have the benefit in the early part of the season of sitting on the bench and watching the performances that Jesus put in. He showed really... Everything a striker can be at Arsenal in terms of that work rate, you know, what he does off the ball, the movement, the spaces he occupies. What Eddie has that maybe Gabriel Jesus doesn't have, that he never will have to learn, is that goal scoring knack that he's had since he was a kid, and he'll probably never lose. That he has got a sixth sense for where to be inside the penalty box. And that is an incredibly valuable asset, valuable asset. But yes. What's been so impressive about him is that I think in combination with Arteta and his staff, they've realised that that alone is probably not enough anymore in the Premier League. Not for a top-level striker right now. No, like I think in the past, perhaps you might have got away with it. and The very, very, very best goal scorers can still. But the demands of the position are so much more. And Eddie is someone who, if you look at his history and you look at his size... Not everyone was convinced, as you said earlier in the show, that he would make that step. And the fact that he has is uh, a testament to the work that he's put in and the work that's been done with him. And it's really thrilling to see him uh, thriving uh, as Arsenal's centre-forward for now. And he's done brilliantly so far. I, I think the challenge now is just for him to keep that up because, you know, Gabriel Jesus... However quickly he might want to be back, I don't think Arsenal are going to be in a position where they're going to take a risk with him. We certainly can have a few more weeks of Eddie Nketiah leading the line, and we need him to keep producing what he's been doing because it's been fantastic so far.
1: Amy, what is it? What's most pleased you about what's happened? I mean, I mean the fact that he's a Haylen kid. I remember. When he came on against Norwich and scored those two goals in the League Cup and everyone was singing his name and he thought, oh, right, emergence of a real star up front. and It never quite worked out. And now he seems to be fulfilling that potential. It's it's joyous to watch, isn't it, really?
0: Well, I mean, it's clear when you speak to anybody who's been with him on his ride along the way how hard he's worked and how dedicated he's been to try and absorb all those extra things you need. I think when you talk to people from Hail you know, he he wasn't necessarily the likeliest as a kid because he you know, he was very slight and small and he didn't always play brilliantly in every game. But like they used to say it's the most remarkable thing, but whatever's you know, whatever he's doing out there, whether he looks looks the part or not, what did he do? Every single game. Always scored. Honestly, you look back at his record in youth football, he just he just scored almost all the time. And it's that knack that uh, James was talking about that is so innate in him. It's so part of his whole being. But how do you translate that into the modern game, especially if you're not a kind of physical beast? And uh, I think it's... Um, It's just such a – it's a credit not just to him but to kind of everyone around him and to Mikel and the staff that when Jesus was obviously going to be out for quite some time, they just trusted this boy, you know, and he's repaid them so far, which has been a really – yeah, credit to sort of the way Arsenal are trying to do things at the moment, I think.
1: I agree. Um, well, it's interesting what Mikael said, James, um, about having a faith, having faith in a player. And Mikael said, "If there's one player, I think I've been unfair with this was, I think last season, I think it's uh, Eddie Nketiah."
2: Yeah, because he he always has been a believer in his talent, but he hadn't always matched that with the opportunities. And you can understand that because Arsenal had two senior strikers for a long time in Aubameyang and Lacazette. Who uh, you know? One seems was the- like a
1: long time ago, uh, doesn't it? it doesn't that?
2: it? Um, <laughs> and it really isn't. Uh, and one was the club captain, and yes. they were both signed for over fifty million pounds, and they ate up a lot of that game time. But Arteta was very, very consistent in what he said on Eddie, and when it got to the end of last season he actually did put Eddie in. And I think that's when he said that it may have been after the Chelsea game where by that point, Lacazette had been dropped. He was on the bench and on his way out of the club, to be honest with his contract expiring and Eddie was playing and scoring. You know, Mikel's not someone who admits they're wrong very often, but he has said it several times about Eddie and Ketia uh, in terms of not giving him the chance, not giving him the opportunity. And you've just got to give him massive credit. And, As Amy said, I think, you know, he's had good coaches around him, but he's also had a a very good family, you know, been really consistent in their support of him, have helped him do all the right things off the pitch. And that can make a massive difference to a young player.
0: Just in that kind of sliding doors football thing, I I wonder how close Eddie was to maybe doing something other than staying when the contract was up. Because it would have been completely understandable and logical if he'd have thought you know I've had a great time here but I just don't think I'm ever going to get the minutes and I want you know he made it abundantly clear in interviews that he wanted to play more he wanted to be you know trusted as a main man and something somewhere gave him that feeling to stay and not to maybe go somewhere else where he might have felt straight away that he would be uh, you know, given those chances. Because I can't remember if the... Uh, I think Eddie had signed his contract, must have been probably before Gabriel Jesus signed. I can't remember the timeline. But even still, he would have known that there would have been another big striker coming in in any event because Lacassette was going to go and uh, Aubameyang was already gone. So it was obvious there was going to be one, if not two, that were going to come in in the summer. And, and he backed himself. And I, I'd love to know a bit more about how that period of time played out what was in his mind what were the pros and cons what swung what swung it from one thing to another because wow. it wasn't it wasn't it, it wasn't it took a while until he decided to sign that contract didn't it it was there on the table for for a bit for him until yeah. until he decided to go for it
2: and how how would he well, be feeling about that decision had Gabriel Jesus not been injured i mean that's another sliding doors moment
0: well,
1: quite, quite. Uh, like you say, so far, it's working out very, very nicely. Thank you. <laughs> um, let's have a song uh, to end. Do we have a song, James? Do we have a song for <laughs> halfway through the season?
2: Uh to be honest, mine uh, was more uh, connected to Moises Casado's uh, plea to be released. Um, <laughs> I picked Freedom by George Michael. Um, I thought it
1: was going to be Please Release Me. I've got to be honest yeah, with you. Yeah, I know. That. I
2: couldn't quite. I, I thought of it, but I couldn't quite pick that as a song. Couldn't freedom, all right. subject well, anyone uh, to it. So I went for Freedom.
0: Okay. Amy, what you got? Uh, I was inspired by going toe-to-toe with Man City up at their place. And uh, the best song I know with the lyrics toe-to-toe in it is Blondie and Rapture. And it's Christ. in the uh, it's in the rap in the middle.
1: Great song. Uh, I was inspired by the fact that it's half time and I was looking for songs with half uh, in the title. And I saw uh, Noel Gallagher uh, Play Half the World Away at Glastonbury last year. It's about 100,000 people sang along and it was utterly brilliant. And uh, and we were singing it as we were walking away from the field. So uh, I'm having that. Even though, and I know what you're going to say, he's a Man City fan, but I don't we care. I don't know about what that. I
0: was going to say. Oh, I was okay. going to say, on the subject of half, I'm disappointed that you didn't cho- choose anything by half man, half biscuit. <laughs>
1: All I want for Christmas <laughs> is a Duke of Prague away kit. I could have had that. There we go. Of course. And there'll be people under 40 going, what and what? But don't worry about it. Look it up. Ask your mum or dad. Uh, that's it. Uh, that has been Handbreak Off. Thank you to Amy. Thank you to James. And thank you to Abby. And thank you for listening. And we'll be back on Wednesday following the close of the transfer window.